0: So Leviticus chapter 6, starting in verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually it shall not go out and this is the law of the grain offering the sons of Aaron shall offer it before the lord in front of the altar and one shall take and one shall take from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat it shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it it shall not be baked with leaven i have given it as their portion of my food offerings it is a most holy like, it is a thing most holy like the sin offering and the guilt offering every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons, who is anointed to succeed him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten." The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it has was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place it shall be burned up with fire this is the law of the guilt offering it is most holy in the place where they kill the bu- the burnt offering they shall kill the guilt offering and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar and all its fat shall be offered the ta- the fat tail the fat that covers the entrails the two kidneys and the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it, and the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it, and every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron." And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord if he offers for it sorry if he offers it for a thanksgiving then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil unleavened wafers smeared with oil and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving he shall bring his offerings with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a freewill offering... It shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day. What remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted. And he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh, of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing... Whether human uncleanness, or an unclean beast, or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself, And the fat of one that it is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people." The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings... And have given them to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons as a perpetual Jew from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual Jew throughout their generations." This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai, on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. It's a word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Beck. So let me ask you this morning once again, how does the holiness of God... Shape the way you live. We heard last week that we are to worship God reverently. Aside from Ecclesiastes 5, which we heard from last week, the instruction to fear the Lord is found in many places in Scripture. And actually, you don't have to restrict yourself uh, to looking for that specific instruction or instructions like it in order to see this in the Bible. Uh, To worship God reverently is seen right throughout the commands and instructions that we see in the book of Leviticus. To fear the Lord because of who He is and because of whom we are. To worship Him reverently because He is holy is one of the key assumptions from which the book of Leviticus is written. Uh, We've seen uh, in the first five chapters of the book, uh, as we've looked at uh, the the five different uh, offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And as we saw when we were looking at all those offerings uh, over the few weeks that we did them, uh, each of them had their own set of instructions and each of them had their own purpose that they served. A reverence could be seen in the very instructions themselves. The offering had to be unblemished. It had to be the best of the flock or the crop. Had to, uh, on some of them, the, the worshipper had to lean a hand on the animal in identification with it. These offerings, they had to be executed as the Lord instructed. And in each of them, God's people recognized that they were unable to enter God's presence unless he himself made it possible. This morning's passage gives instructions for those same five offerings again, but this time with a particular focus on what the priests were meant to do with them. And the reason the priests, uh, mostly the focus of the instruction, is because this section highlights the holiness of God. And in the whole sacrificial system, the priests played a key role in ensuring God's holiness was to be properly revered as we work our way through this passage, I don't have any specific headings or points for you like I normally do, but I hope to draw out of the text some theological truths that are fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus and that apply to us today. Now, this passage is fairly clearly marked into its various sections with uh, either the phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, or this is the law of the such and such offering. I don't know if you noticed that as uh, Beck read through that this morning. If you look through the passage and see those markers, you'll find them in verse 8, verse 14, 24, verse 1 of chapter 7, and in verses 11, 22, 28, and 37. If you're very quick at reading and skimming, then I'm sure you could have followed that. If you look at uh, these divisions, we see that the instructions uh, are in the order of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the ordination offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and finally the peace offering with several other instructions. It's a different layout to the first five chapters As we work through uh, the passage this morning, the last few sections that we'll cover will be much uh, quicker than the first, so don't panic if it's 40 minutes past and I'm still only halfway through the passage. Let me encourage you to uh, have your Bible open uh, to these chapters as we work our way through it and may God give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. Let's begin at the beginning of verses 8 and 9 of chapter 6. Our first section opens with a phrase that is going to be repeated, as I said, through these chapters. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. Now, the sons of Aaron is another way of describing the priesthood, talking about the priests. And they were always taken from the tribe of Levi. Kids, does anyone remember how many tribes in the tribe of Israel there are? Sorry, in the nation of Israel there are. Yeah? Twelve. That's right. And Levi is one of them, the tribe of Levi. And Aaron was also of the tribe of Levi. And this phrase, the sons of Aaron, came to be used to refer to the priests. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, the priesthood were responsible for these offerings. And these offerings were also how they got their living. They did not have a portion of land. They did not have uh, things that, uh, uh, animals that they kept. And the first offering God gives instruction on here is the burnt offering. As I mentioned before, the order is slightly different, uh, with the peace offering uh, coming last instead of third, as it does in the first five chapters of Leviticus. But for both of these, the burnt offering is first. Now, There could be various reasons for this, uh, but you might remember when we uh, first looked at chapter one several weeks ago that the burnt offering was commanded by God to be offered up twice a day by the entire nation, every single day. Two lambs were to be offered up as a burnt offering on behalf of the whole nation. It seems that the reason for this was to show how the atonement, because again, we remember in chapter 1, the offering was given as an atonement for sin, was necessary for Israel to be able to approach our holy God. And the total and complete sacrifice of the burnt offering was required by all who worship him. And this is, of course, no less true today, is it? For those of us who hope to stand in God's presence and experience not his wrath, but his grace. And for our living sacrifice offerings, which as we've seen over the last few weeks, Paul takes the language in Romans 12 to say, offer your lives as a living sacrifice in order for God to receive those and accept those as a pleasing aroma to Him, it requires nothing less than atonement for our sin and an offering of our whole selves. Atonement received by grace through Jesus' sacrifice and our lives offered up entirely, completely in worship. As my theology lecturer used to say, salvation is the free gift that will cost you everything. The burnt offering was a reminder of this. As we read in this first section and see, especially in verses 9 and 13, the fire of the burnt offering was to be kept burning on it. It burnt all through the night and all through the day. The fire was to never go out. Can you just imagine that? The fire was to never go out. Not only was it going to uh, cost at minimum two lambs every day, but also the wood to keep them burning all day and all night. And priests tending to it, making sure that it does not go out. So it is with us. Our sacrifice of worship in our lives to God does not stop. Do you recognize that? We do not walk away from this gathering of God's church and suddenly stop living for Him, suddenly stop offering our lives of worship to Him. When we go to sleep, we do it in worship. When we go to work, we offer it in worship. When we eat, we do it in worship. When we brush our teeth, which like the burnt offering you should do twice a day, we do in worship. When we read a book, we do it in worship. When we go into surgery, we do it in worship. When we watch a TV show, we do it in worship. When we think, when we feel, when we respond, when we converse with other people, we do it in worship. Brothers and sisters, do we live with the conscious reality that everything we do in life is offered up to him in worship? I could have kept going on that list, but I probably would have started to get to some activities that I'm sure you can probably also think of that couldn't be classed as worship. Things which, on the contrary, we would need to confess and ask forgiveness for. Or do we treat our lives with the kind of care and devotion to our worship of God that we see in this passage? Notice how the priests had to take such great care when handling even the ashes from the burnt offering. You see in verses 10 to 11, as, as he removes the ashes from the altar, he needs to be wearing his linen garment, his priestly robes. And then when he carries it out of the court of the tabernacle, he must take those off and put on other garments. Throughout the book of Leviticus and in the sacrificial system, we see a separation of the sacred and the common. We're going to see another example of that later. There is a recognition that what is set aside as holy by God is not to be trifled with, is not to be treated casually or flippantly. Do we pay the same kind of attention to our lives of worship? Yes, we don't have a sacrificial system. In the New Covenant, there is no separation of the sacred and the common. But in, in many ways, uh, that, that should make us more terrified. Our whole lives, everything of ours is devoted to the Lord in worship. Church buildings and pulpits, this, this music stand, this microphone, uh, contrary to what some people might think, they are not somehow more sacred and holy Surely recognizing that our God is holy, that we worship Him in, in his, uh, by His grace and according to His commands, recognition of His holiness should cause us to worship with devotion and reverence. And recognizing that He has made us holy ought to cause us to take the utmost care in how we live our lives in worship. The Apostle Peter channeling the language and ideas of Leviticus says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the church is now the priesthood. We are all, so to speak, of the tribe of Levi. We are the holy nation. And as we offer up our lives as living sacrifices, we are reminded that because of Jesus, the Lord receives our offerings as a pleasing aroma to Him. The atonement for our sin that is given because of Christ's perfect sacrifice will never go out. You will never be able to put that out. His sacrifice, His atonement for you, will not fail. And we can have confidence in our faith and in our offerings of worship, in our devotion to God because of that. Well, as we saw in chapter 2, the grain offering in the next section from verse 14 accompanied often the burnt offering. As we saw then, it probably carried with it this sense of tribute, this sense of bringing a gift to a more powerful entity, a recognition that they they were coming to one greater than them. We see here the instructions for the priests in what they could eat from the offering and how they were to eat it. In verse 15, it is the handful of fine flour with oil and frankincense that is offered up on the altar. And in verse 16, we see that the rest of the offering is eaten. It is eaten unleavened in a holy place. Now, leaven, kids. This might be a bit tricky. Does anyone remember what leaven is? Oh, you want to take a stab? What if uh, no, ki- I said, kids? <laughs> uh, what, if, what if I told you it was similar to yeast? Would you know what that is? A bit tricky. Oh, looks like we need to do some more cooking classes together. So leaven, like yeast, is something that you put in bread, which helps make it rise, right? So if you ever had flat bread or pita bread or that kind of thing, that doesn't have any leaven in it. That's why it's flat. That's why it doesn't rise. That's why it's not airy. Now, leaven in in the ancient world, in in the time of Israel, was probably seen as something which corrupted and caused uh, decay, And additionally, pagan sacrifices that were often offered included leaven. Uh, We we know that this is how it came to be thought of, and we see evidence of this in the New Testament, right? Jesus himself warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. Paul talks about uh, making sure that the leaven doesn't work its way through the whole lump. It is seen as a corrupting agent. It is seen as something which influences others into sin, And though we don't know for sure that that's why the bread was unleavened, it would certainly make a lot of sense. Especially because, as we see in verses 16, 17, and 18, that these grain offerings are holy. It must be eaten in a holy place, in the court of the tent of meeting. You can't take it home to eat it. It is, as verse 17 tells us, a thing most holy. Like the sin and the guilt offering. And as verse 18 tells us, whatever touches them shall become holy. Once again, what we see here is that even with the grain offering, great care was to be taken in how it was offered up because God is a holy God. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be treated lightly. He is to be feared and revered. Now there's lots of debate and confusion about uh, why verse 18 means, uh, by uh, sorry, what verse 18 means by anything that, that touches them shall become holy. As we'll say, uh, as we'll see later in these chapters, there are examples of where it goes the other way. Now I don't profess to have an ironclad answer for you, but it seems to me like this action of God making people holy through uh, their contact with holy things is one that we see in Scripture. So Isaiah, for example, in chapter 6, is cleansed when the seraphim touches his lips with burning coal from the altar. And of course, the ultimate example, what happens to the sick and the diseased? What happens to the unclean when they come into contact with Jesus? They are cleansed, healed. And so, though the priests themselves are not holy... By touching what is holy, they are made holy. Just as it is for us. Our salvation, our being uh, put into a holy state, so to speak, does not come from within us, but comes from without. It is when Christ grabs hold of us and pulls us out of the miry clay that we are made holy. In the same way that the priests themselves were not morally perfect, which is why they they offered up sin offerings for themselves when they sinned, right? Well, so it is with us. We will never reach moral perfection or perfect obedience in this life, but Christ's atonement for us means that we are counted as holy before God. And through His Spirit given as a gift to us, at work in us, we are daily transformed to be more like Christ. Well, this is an appropriate place to transition to our next section in verses 19 to 23. Here we're given instructions about the ordination offering. The term ordination offering is used in the summary in in verse 37 of chapter 7. But the term isn't mentioned in the first five chapters, and this is likely because it's basically just a type of grain offering. As we'll see in our next sermon in chapters 8 and 9, the ordination offering was given when the sons of Aaron were uh, ordained as priests. But that wasn't the only time. It wasn't just a once-off. As verse 20 says, this was also a regular grain offering, half in the morning and half in the evening. Priests were to offer this every day. Every day. Why? Well, if you look at verse 23 you'll see that the whole offering was burned and none of it was to be eaten. Similar to the burnt offering. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, when a priest offered up a sin offering for himself, he didn't eat any of it. So it seems like this grain offering, this ordination offering that the priest offered up on the day of their ordination and every day after that was to atone for their own sin. The priest had to offer up a sacrifice daily for his sin. Imagine that constant reminder as someone who was meant to be holy in their devotion and service to the Lord. Imagine being in that position, knowing that that is your role to to serve God in this way, to, to treat with care the holy things. The ones who were anointed for this task and set apart for it, and to continually offer up this grain offering. Thanks be to God that we have an even better high priest. Thanks be to God that we have one who didn't have to offer up anything for his sin because he had none, and who offered up himself for us once for all so that we would not have to keep doing so. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 27 says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He say, how great is our savior? Unlike the priests needing to offer up the ordination offering every day. Do we love Christ?" our great high priest, do we worship him and seek to live in contemplation of and in response to his holiness? His once for all sacrifice means that we no longer need to sacrifice for sin. When we put our trust in him, there is no need for ongoing sacrifice. that brings us to our next section from verse 24, the sin offering. Kids, any of you remember why this one is called a sin offering? I'll give you a clue. It's an obvious and appropriate name for the offering. Yeah, to atone for their sins. That's right. It was the offering. Now, you might remember when we looked at it in chapter 4, that when the the phrasing was often, now when this person becomes aware of their sin, they will bring this offering as atonement for it. So the bull or the goat or the sheep or the birds or the flower that the worshipper brought would atone for their sin. As with the grain offering, what we see here are instructions on what out of the offering the priests may eat and how they are to eat it. As we saw in chapter 4, and is reiterated here in verse 30 of chapter 6, the two offerings that were brought into the holy place for either the priest or the whole congregation were not to be eaten at all. But the other ones, for a leader or for a common person, they were allowed to be eaten. And again, they were to take great care in eating it in a holy place, in the court of the tent of meeting. But then we have this interesting set of instructions from verses 27 and 28. It says this, Whatever touches its flesh, that is the flesh of the sin offering, shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. So in in the same way that whatever touched the grain offering became holy, the same happens with the flesh of the sin offering. Interestingly, there are these instructions about what to do if blood splashes on a garment of clothing. You might remember from the instructions that blood would be splashed on the altar or sometimes poured out before the altar. Blood symbolized the cleansing of the altar and the forgiveness of sin. It was also not to be eaten. And here we see, again, the importance of keeping the sacred and the common separate. You see, God here is is—he's not a clean freak. He's not just trying to make sure that there's no blood on, on the priest's clothes. No, the, the blood on the garments cannot stay there, and which is why they must be washed in a holy place. And they must be washed there because you, you can't take them home to wash them. They, they belong to the, the sacred um, items, objects in the courtyard of the temple. And the vessel, he says, the vessel in which it is boiled, if it's earthenware, if it's clay, it's to be broken. Probably because the blood could seep into the clay and you know, not be properly cleaned. We tend not to have clay bowls and things today, so we don't really get that. And if it's bronze, he says, it's to be scoured and rinsed. Again, the, the holiness of God is not to be trifled with. And for us today, it's important to recognize that, as as I said before, the sacred common separation no longer exists. All of life is now sacred. But we are to remember and to treat our lives of worship with the same reverence. The senior pastor of the church that I grew up in wasn't a huge fan of footy, AFL footy. He used to say, I'd rather be in church than watching a bag of wind being kicked around a field of grass. I agree. But I'm sure, like many of you, I still watched the grand final yesterday, as disappointing as the result was. Sorry, Collingwood fans. Brad? Brad. Or at least some of it. If you did watch it, or if you do watch other things, do you watch it with any thought that such leisure is part of your worship. Have you had any solemn reflection about how such activities find their place in your offering of a living sacrifice to the Lord? You see, the issue is not whether we are allowed to engage in these morally neutral activities. The question is, do we approach life with the same reverence for the holy? The difficulty for us, as mentioned, is what that looks like. For Christians, we must look to Christ. As we heard last week, if you're going to worship God reverently, you must worship Him through Christ. To worship God through Christ means to look on His holiness, to look on His loveliness, to receive and respond to His grace, to see His perfection, to see His sacrifice, and to live in total surrender, reverence and care, acknowledging and worshipping God Recognizing His holiness is far more than being about how we do certain things. It is about far more than simply saying, well, to be reverent, we must sit quietly when we are in church. It is about far more than whether we we speak or, or talk or pray in a certain way. It is about giving and doing everything. For Christ and through him. To return to the Apostle Peter's letter, it says this in verses four to five of chapter two. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Church, may we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, as was the case earlier in the book, next comes the guilt offering. Again, it is most holy Again, the instructions are basically the same as we saw in chapter 5. And again, we saw that we see that it's the priests who can eat the offering and they must eat it in a holy place. It is most holy. Well, the similarities of this make sense, seeing as in verse 7, we read that the law for the sin and the guilt offering is the same. There are some differences between them, which I mentioned a few weeks ago, and I encourage you to do your study in that. But by and large, the sin and the guilt offerings address the issue of bringing an offering for atonement for a specific sin. Something Robin pointed out to me after I preached on these offerings in chapters 4 and 5 was that this act of bringing a sin or a guilt offering was very obviously a public act. You, you can't sneak into the courtyard of the tent of meeting, especially if you're leading a bull. It's right in the centre of the camp. Now, people aren't necessarily going to know the, the specific offering that you're bringing the bull or sheep or goat or birds or flower for. But you can imagine, as people made their way towards the court of the tabernacle, the people might have wondered, Oh, I wonder why Shelley's bringing that bird. I wonder what she did this week. Or perhaps even they might suspect that it's, it's for a sin that was fairly obvious or maybe even something they committed against you and you think, oh, I know what that's for. Yeah. There's an important lesson in this for us today. You see, confession of sin is not only a private act. It is certainly that. But it is more than that. As James reminds us in his letter, in James 5.16, we are to confess our sins to one another. So not only is our question, how often do you confess your sin to the Lord? But it is also, how often do you confess your sin to a trusted brother or sister in Christ? When we take our sins seriously, when we take the holiness of God seriously, and when we see that our sin no longer condemns us in Christ because He has atoned for it, then its power to shame us into keeping it hidden is broken. Brothers and sisters, think about why you would not do this. Why would you not confess your sin to others? My guess for most of us is because we feel ashamed. It's because we don't want other people to know. I'm not saying you have to come up here and take the microphone and tell everybody at the end of this. But the Lord tells us to confess our sins to one another. And one of the things that does is it breaks the power of shame. It reminds us, as, as our brother or sister is able to, to remind us of the truth, the wonder, the glory of the grace of the gospel... To be able to say, you are forgiven. Even if it's not a sin against them, they can extend to you the forgiveness that God extends to you in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you feel stagnant and stuck in your growth, confess your sin to another. Just like a mushroom, if you keep your sin hidden in the dark, it will grow. If you bring it out into the light, its power will shrink. Confess it before God. Confess it before one another because he has taken away the sting and the shame of your sin. Well, one of the interesting things at this point in the passage is that in verses 8 to 10, the instructions go back over the burnt offering and the grain offering. We read that the skin of the burnt offering, which wasn't burnt up, along with the rest of the animal, was to go to the priest. And animal skins, uh, they were used for things like containers. And this was yet another way of God providing for the priesthood because they didn't keep their own animals. And then there is clarification about the grain offerings and whom they go to with verse 10 saying that it was to be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. I think what's going on here, I think the reason uh, it reverts back to this in these verses is because there is an emphasis, a a focus here on how God is providing for his priests. And as we saw uh, a few weeks ago, again, this is a principle that comes through into the New Testament. God feeds those who feed his sheep. I won't go back over that. And finally, we come to the section. Sorry, to say finally is perhaps a bit deceptive. It's only verse 11. But it, as I said, it will be quicker. This is the last section. We come to the last of the offerings to be treated the peace offering. Of the three offerings that resulted in a pleasing aroma, you might remember in chapters 1, 2, and 3, they all resulted in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this was the last one in chapter 3. In some ways, it's fitting to finish here because the peace offering demonstrates God's fellowship with his people through the atonement of their sin and through God's faithfulness to his covenant, his people are welcome at his table. They can know the shalom, the peace of God. Verses 11 to 18 show us that there were three reasons to offer up a peace offering. Thanksgiving as a vow and as a free will. Again, we went over those a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go into that in detail. But it's worth remembering and recognizing here that instructions given in this section are not just to the priests. One of the reasons for this is because peace offerings were the only offerings out of the five where the worshiper giving the offering could actually eat of it. This is the only one where the food did not just go to the priests, but actually the one bringing it along with their family, along with members of their household, could actually partake in this. And it's actually quite probable that for many, this was perhaps the only time where they were able to eat meat. Again, as I mentioned before, that it is a luxury that we, uh, in our world, often take for granted, so much so that we have things like plant-based meat, which I tried for the first time this week, and it's okay. Okay. You see, this, this peace offering, this is a, uh, an opportunity for the worshipper to actually partake. It makes sense. The fellowship offering, the peace offering, the one where they recognise and are seen and, and embody the fact that they are welcomed to God's table. One of those being the Thanksgiving offering, like we talked about uh, when we went through this, living a life of gratitude to God is an essential part of the Christian life. To live a life of thankfulness to Him. Not only that, it is one, as Christians, where our instincts ought to move very quickly towards thanksgiving in everything in life. And we see this with the offerings, the first fruits of the crop. Kids, you remember first fruits? You remember that? It's one word. Remember what it means? It's pretty straightforward. Have a guess. The first fruits, that's right. All you have to do is separate the words and you've got the definition. It's the first fruits from the crop that they bring. So notice the, notice the immediacy. Notice how, how quickly the worshipper would bring that offering in thankfulness to God. And brothers and sisters, how quick are we to give thanks in our lives? In giving thanks for our food in each meal even if it is non-meat-meat, it's a good cultural practice. It's a good reminder of this truth for us as Christians. In our public prayers on the Lord's Day, we always seek to incorporate either a specific prayer of thanks or at the very least, thanksgiving in our prayers. Such practices remind us how God has provided for us everything we need. And not only that, he has given us far more abundantly than we deserve. With that instruction comes a warning. Beware, brothers and sisters. An ungrateful heart, the opposite of this one who is not thankful to the Lord quickly and often in, and recognizing all of his many gifts. That is a heart that is on the fast track to grumbling against God. It's so funny. So often we read in the book of Exodus as Israel is, is freed out of Egypt and, uh, and you know, God does these incredible miracles to, to redeem them. And then it is not long before they start complaining about the fact that uh, here we are, now we're going to die in the wilderness. If only we could go back to slavery where we at least had meat, Sorry, it keeps coming up. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, if it was plant-based meat, I could understand that. But, you know, we, we so often read that and we think, how ridiculous could you, could you be? You, you've just seen a pillar of fire, you know, separate you and, and Pharaoh's army. God has just opened the Red Sea and you've walked through it. This incredible, incredible miracle. And now you're complaining. We look at them we think, that's Ridiculous. And yet how often, how quickly do we forget to be thankful for all that the Lord has given us? A heart that is not quick to offer up thanksgiving to the Lord is one that is on a fast track to a wrongful sense of entitlement on the fast track to doubting God's goodness to you, to seeking fulfilment and pleasure in everything else but the Lord. It is on a heart that is red on a slippery slope to a lack of appreciation for the blessings and the people that God has given you. And perhaps even a resentment towards them. A thankful heart recognises that because God has given us Christ, we can be thankful for all that God does in our lives. As the old song from the 70s goes, give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ his Son. Well, in verses 16 to 18, we have these curious instructions about how long the worshippers had to eat the offering before it had to be burned. If it was a thanksgiving offering, then it must be eaten on the day it was offered. Perhaps again, tapping into that immediacy of thankfulness. If it was a vow or free will offering, they had till the next day. Again, this is one of those details that is not explained for us. There there could be many reasons why this is the case. We're just not given. At least one plausible option, I think, which has application also for us today and is echoed by Jesus is that in eating it on the day it is offered, the worshiper demonstrates their trust in God's provision for each day. Just like the Israelites when they were roaming the wilderness were told not to collect more manna than they needed for the day because they needed to trust that God would provide for the very next day. So too we depend on God for all that we need each day. But look at the end of verse 18. It is tainted and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Obviously, to break this rule was a sin. To eat it beyond that day or to eat it on the third day for the thanksgiving and the, the free will and the vow offerings was a sin. And perhaps we get a hint of the reason from the next section. Let's read from verse 19. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. This time, the flesh from the offering that the worshipper was allowed to eat could be contaminated. It wasn't like the most holy offerings that the priests were allowed to eat, which made them holy. The flesh of this offering, if it came into contact with something unclean, was no longer fit to be eaten. It had to be burned. And that unclean thing could be the person given the offering. As verse 21 tells us, that could be from touching something unclean. And we'll get more into that clean and unclean later on in the book of Leviticus. This wasn't a small thing. Look how serious the penalty was at the end of both of verse 20 and verse 21. They were cut off from their people. Being cut off from the people referred to either exile or death. It happened in different ways, but the result was the same. They were cut off. It was a severe penalty. And once again, this, this time for the common people, the holiness, holiness of God. Was highlighted. The distinction between holy and unholy, clean, unclean, sacred, common. As I hope you've picked up right throughout these chapters, this is not something to take lightly. Verses 22 to 27 once again remind us of the prohibitions to eat fat and blood. Fat because it is the best part and reserved for the Lord in the offerings and blood because the life is in the blood. Because by the blood, the sins of the people were atoned for and forgiven. Again, I won't go over the details of that having done it before, but I hope we are grasping the severity of this. Think about that. Eating fat or blood also resulted in being cut off from the people. Over and over again, we are reminded of the holiness of God and the seriousness of our worship. Finally, in this last section, these chapters give their last instructions about these offerings in verses 28 to 36. Here we're told about how certain parts of the peace offering, namely the breast and the right thigh, were offered as a wave offering by the priests. This isn't a a separate offering, but a description of what is being done with that, that offering. The action was a physical indication of offering up these pieces to the Lord. And it again symbolized the fellowship and the peace that the worshippers had with him. But that wasn't only its only function. Verses 34 to 36 tell us that the Lord specifically marked this part of the offering out to be an ongoing provision for the priests. I have taken it from the people of Israel and given them to Aaron the priests and his sons as a perpetual Jew. Perpetual meaning ongoing and Jew meaning what is owed to them. Again, we see God providing for his priests. Again, the principle carries over. God uh, cares for his gospel workers through the care of his church. And finally, in our last two verses, the seven chapters are summarized in verse 37, and we're given the setting of when they were given in verse 38. The Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai these things. On the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord. All that we read, all that we see here in the book of Leviticus was given by God through Moses to his people. And when God speaks, we have a moral imperative to hear and obey. Let me finish this morning by bringing us back to 1 Peter 2. Let me read verses 4 to 5 again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That is only possible because he is our perfect sacrifice. Our sin separates us from God, but the perfect sacrificial lamb has atoned for our sin once and for all. If you're here this morning, you have not yet trusted in Christ. The good news, the the great news of the gospel is that though, as we have seen this morning, God is holy and in our sin, we cannot even hope to be accepted before him. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the son of God came down from heaven, lived a life of perfect obedience to the father, died on a Roman cross so that all who turn from their sin and trust in Him might have their sin atoned for in His sacrifice. And He rose from the dead on the third day and was ascended to the Father, that we might have great hope in following Him there. I hope if that is you have not trusted in Him yet, if you have not surrendered to Jesus and offered up your life as a living sacrifice, I would love to talk to you about that later. Brothers and sisters, as we do that and continue to do that with our lives, as we live lives of repentance and faith, as we live lives of thanksgiving and devotion to our God, as we seek to worship Him reverently with our lives, may we see that our offerings of worship are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is the only way. As we recognize his holiness, we respond by worshiping him in reverence and great care to obey all that he has commanded. Will his holiness and his holy love and mercy shape your life of sacrifice? Let's pray.